Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. was brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, heritagefoodsusa.com, heritageradionetwork.org. Pleasure. You won't find a recipe for it, your guests won't ask for it, you can't buy it, and you wouldn't know what to do with one if you could. But in the spirit of utilizing the whole animal this Thanksgiving, let's talk a little bit about a turkey's caruncle, the hideous red fleshy pack of protuberances hanging off of a turkey's head. You'll see it depicted most in seasonal clip art as a blossoming red regalia or a little bun seductively tossed to the side of the nose, like Roger Rabbit's girlfriend's sideswept hair. These two better parts of the caruncle are the snood, the part that hangs down the nose, and the waddle, the catch-all for everything under the chin. Let's delve further into this game bird's iconic mass of extra-culinary flesh and then be done with it for good, shall we? The snood is a flashy, erectile flap of skin that hangs from every turkey's forehead though it is used mainly for males doing what they do best, which is fighting and mating. In a fight, it's the first thing to go by way of an attacking bird's pecking and pulling. It's because of this that most domesticated turkeys have their snoods lobbed off when they're young. When a turkey is on the prowl, his snood engorges with blood, doubles in length, serving as a throbbing, battle-scarred badge of virility and good health, recognized with reverence by females and other males. The name for the wattle appeared out of nowhere in the 16th century. As a more bird-centric and onomatopoeic term than the more general dewlap, referring to any fleshy or fatty underchin protuberance. Serving the same general purpose as the snood, the wattle is known to brighten in red color when the bird is hunting for a mate. From the freer-flowing neck flaps to the bulging lower neck lobes called the major caruncles, the wattle is like a flag flowing in celebration of the turkey's 45 million years of evolution. Some of these oozing caruncles actually seem to have been spilling down a turkey's neck for about that long. While deboned turkey and goosenecks have been used as a thick and crisp sausage casing in some cuisines, this reporter has found no worthwhile culinary application for the waddle. So indulge in a Google image search, be done with the thing, and have a happy, de-snooted Thanksgiving. I'm Peter Henry for HeritageRadioNetwork.org. That was good. That was interesting. Well, welcome to the main course. My name is Patrick Martins. I am your host, and uh, we're going to have a great show today. We have Emily Crumble Drake, which I remember because it reminds me of Emily Crumble Cake. Um, (laughs) And uh, she is uh, going to be with us from Emory University, and then one of our favorite people in the food world and the first ever evolutionary of our, uh, which is our very successful series now which is talking about Coleman Andrews in this episode uh, the current one but the very first one was Steve Jenkins uh, food expert uh, one of the principal one of the founders of Dean and DeLuca and Fairway Market we'll go on and on uh, but we uh, wealth of stuff to talk about with him but uh, we're very excited we just uh processed all these turkeys and uh, we are knee deep in turkeys and the fridges uh, are filled with heritage turkeys including a fairway market so uh, we are happy to be sitting down uh, take a little break uh, and be in the radio studio at Roberta's restaurant at 261 Moore Street Um, our first guest is uh, Emily Crumble Drake who uh, works with Emory University and uh, we are very proud of a four or five year history of them buying heritage turkeys every Thanksgiving for the entire campus. So it is uh, really one of the largest institutional support uh, purchases for heritage breeds. So, uh, Emily, are you uh, with us on the phone? I am, Patrick. Oh, well, thanks so much for taking some time out of your Sunday to be with us. No problem. And it's it's actually Cumbie Drake, although I kind of like the, the crumble Drake. Oh, well, that's not as good <laughs> now. 
No, it's just that's still a very good name. Uh, it just uh, well, tell us exactly what you do uh, at uh, at Emory, uh, your role there, and then tell us about this event that's been happening for the past five years with the turkeys and how that looks uh, on campus. Yeah, well, um, I am a sustainability program <coughs> coordinator at Emory's Office of Sustainability Initiatives, and I also spend a portion of my time working with Emory Dining on both sustainable food education and some of their um, waste management efforts. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm actually an Emory alum. I graduated from the college in, in, in 2010, and um, this past Thursday we had our, I think it's our sixth annual, actually, sixth. Um, Heritage Harvest Feast on mm-hmm. campus. Um, where we purchased um, over 700 pounds of Heritage turkeys mm-hmm. from Heritage Foods USA. And we serve them in um, our main student dining facility as well as the faculty dining room and uh, one of the cafes at the School of Public Health. And um, along, we serve them along with um, a, a seasonal menu of some roasted sweet potatoes and simmered greens and a fall succotash, some, some good local southern style food um and i worked with students um i'm the advisor for the the slow food emory student group and serve Mm -hmm. on the board of slow food atlanta and so we had some of the slow food students um actually in the dining facility um as students were were lining up to get their turkey um working to educate them about what's special about these turkeys Mm -hmm. um we we had a student. We, I convinced the student to dress up into it in a turkey costume this year, <laughs> uh, which was really fun. And um, we only you know we only had a few seconds, um, probably ten or twenty seconds to to chat with students as they were getting in line for their for their turkey. But we we tried to discuss with them the importance of preserving um, diversity within our food system and just get at the simple fact that in order to to save these animals, we need to eat them. Mm-hmm. So we, we handed out stickers to, to students who were eating the food saying, I eat them to save them with a link to, to Heritage Foods USA's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have some, some seasonal food guides, which we, we handed out to students. We're finding that more and more students are really unaware of what's seasonality um, in Georgia and why it's important. And so we, we incorporated that into into the education efforts. Because it's nice there all the time. Everyone figures everything is available year-round. Now, uh, tell me, obviously this is part of a larger initiative by Emory University to bring more sustainable dining options onto campus. So could you speak to the other things you do throughout the year? Yeah, well, um, Emory University has, to my knowledge, the most aggressive sustainable food purchasing goal in the country at any university. It's a goal of 75% local or sustainable food by 2015. Um, and so we were working to achieve that goal in, in, in various ways. Um, one of our, our biggest successes is a farmer's market that we have um, every Tuesday afternoon while school's in session, um, which allows both students, faculty, and staff, as well as people from the hospital, which is on our, on our campus, to have access to, um, to local fruits and vegetables, as well as um, baked goods and breads and grass-fed beef and cheeses and things like that on a weekly basis. Um, we also have a really successful, another really successful annual event called our uh, Sustainable Food Fair, which an uh, anthropology class um, puts on every year, um, which is kind of a it's, a, it's a massive farmer's market where local restaurants come in um, that serve local food and give out samples, and we have different organizations like George Organics and Slow Food who come and educate students about the work they're doing. Um, and at that, we, we incorporate some education about biodiversity as well. We always have an education table about um, apples and um, how we've really decreased our diversity of apples throughout the world um, in the in the past century. Um, and then we, in terms of actual food purchasing, um, to, to work towards that 75% goal, we've developed a really good relationship with White Oak Pastures. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Harris's uh, beef, right? Yeah, he does yeah, beef, he does poultry, he's really does ducks and geese. He does a little bit of everything. Yeah, they have some, some pigs now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're in South Georgia, Southwest Georgia and Bluffton, Georgia. And so we actually, any day of the week, you can get, buy a grass-fed beef burger in our, um, in our like main food court dining facility. Um, so that's another great example of a I think a, a t- 
true success story and providing access to some really great sustainable food on campus. Does that mean you have to deal with a lot more purveyors, I imagine, right? I mean, you can't just buy 100% of everything from one place, right? You have to kind of diversify and make things a little bit more complicated. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that when this goal was set in 2006, um, there wasn't really necessarily a a knowledge of if this supply if the supply of these foods are even available locally or regionally um, and that's one of the biggest challenges that we face that you know we're an institution with 14,000 students and um, just as many um, faculty and staff and so we serve a lot of food mm-hmm. and it's, it's a challenge to find um, uh, local and sustainably sourced items at a, at a price point that the university can meet um, yeah. for well- all those for all those students for sure well uh, my last question to you is uh, you know as besides the food being so good uh, as an alum and I know uh, Steve our next guest his daughter went is an alumni of Emory uh, what would you tell students uh, high school students listening uh, as they uh, consider uh, Emory University Uh, what's your pitch for what makes Emory such a great place to learn well, I had an absolutely amazing experience at Emory, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be back there as a, as a staff member. I think um, it, it, being in Atlanta is a really exciting thing. Um, Atlanta is a budding, it has a great food scene, lots of farmers markets, lots of amazing restaurants, and so it, it's fun to be at a, at a great um, top 20 research institution um, with a liberal arts focus, but in this amazing city with plenty of fun things to do and, and good food to eat. Well, very good. It is lovely down there, and we are very appreciative of the uh, relationship with Heritage, and we know our network of poultry farmers are too. Um, It's definitely a feather in their cap that uh, you buy their turkeys. Well, thank you so much for giving us time, uh, and uh, people can learn more about Emory. We'll link, of course, to their website, which everyone can find easily, but we'll link on our site as well. And Emily, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry that I mispronounced your uh, middle name there, your main name. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Well, thank you so much for your work, Patrick. It's a pleasure to to partner with you on this. Yes, well, have a great day, and we're going to take a break and come back with one of our favorite guests, Steve Jenkins. Stay tuned. You are listening to Andy's Biscuits by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Well, we are back on the main course. Uh, we are broadcasting live out of Roberta's. We're sponsored by Kane 5, and we very much appreciate their sponsorship. So here we are in studio with Steve Jenkins. Welcome back, Steve. Hi, Patrick. I'm happy to be here. So we're talking Thanksgiving. Does uh, Fairway make any money on turkeys? We manage to make payroll this time <laughs> of year, yeah. I imagine you sell other things, but on the turkey itself, is that a big profit center or is that just something you have to bring in to move because everyone eats one? We always sell turkeys at such a low margin. Yeah. They, they are only there to bring people in the store. No, mm-hmm. we don't make money on turkeys, but we make money on other stuff. What are the most profitable items for a supermarket? I mean, I've, I've had you on so many times. Where do you make money? I know Fairway, unlike uh, Dean and DeLuca and some of the other places you've been before, uh, you know, really sells everything. We are a volume business, Patrick. Mm-hmm. We, we um, make money by sheer volume. And now, I've been thinking lately how 10 years ago there were no Whole Foods, there were no Trader Joe's. There was really not that kind of competition. We competed against various neighborhood markets, but we've never had this kind of competition coming after us the way we do the last couple of years and certainly mm-hmm. this year. So the result of that is everybody is augering down their retail prices for everything in an attempt to make themselves look 
as value conscious as fairway mm-hmm. and it's difficult for us to not be embarrassed and to not to not get killed on on prices of things because a big outfit like ShopRite or Stop and Shop heretofore was not our competitor, but they are these days because we've got 14 stores and another number of stores coming. So every place we go, we're bunking up against somebody who's trying to kill us. Mm -hmm. And that being said, in Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn, we've got Whole Foods and and Trader Joe's just, 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 shooting away at us, sniping away at us. So it's really, really difficult. Good for the consumer because everything gets lower and lower in price, and that's a long way around of answering your question. Uh We're not making a heck of a lot of money on any particular item or any particular group of items because we have so much competition Uh trying to make us look bad that the prices are as low as they can be. So uh, how many, uh, is it number of people in the neighborhood? Like, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, one fairway cannibalizing another one because they're too close to each other. Yeah. How do you yeah. distance things? Is it number of you people, don't. number of blocks? No, you don't. You don't. You just do your demographic and you find uh, a neighborhood that would support a fairway and you, you don't look at whether you've got one nearby or not because if you don't take that real estate, Trader Joe's or Whole Foods is going to take that real estate and then you're really aced out. Mm-hmm. you got to understand that we're not so proud that we don't tell the truth on the radio and in print. We we had our, our behinds handed to us the last six, eight years by Trader Joe and by Whole Foods because they got to all the real estate before we did. We're you know, we're comparatively mom and pop compared to those guys and we, we sort of back into everything. We're not mature. We're not modern. We're as as, as backward and as provincial as we ever were and anything that we've accomplished such as getting into red hook or or getting into pelham manor was just just sheer blind luck because mm-hmm. there's no method to our madness we you know we're a public company now but but even the guys that own the majority of the company they're still feeling their way and they they have to listen to us but it's it's just so so difficult out there. There's so much competition. Mm-hmm. It's it's not so much fun anymore. If if it wasn't for the glory of the food and my successes at getting my hands on things that other stores don't have access to out of Europe, I'd be really jaded and I'd be really cranky. Well, I'm already cranky. I'm not mm-hmm. jaded, but I'm cranky because it's just gotten so bloody cutthroat. And when you do all that, those new stores, Patrick, you've got to find another cadre of, of experienced people who can guide a bunch of un- inexperienced people who are working the counters and, mm-hmm. and just, just hoping and praying that the young and experienced don't make you look like a fool and cost you money in the, in the process. So as I, it's just not the way it used to be where everybody was hale and hearty and the best at what they do when, you know, because when you get bigger, it doesn't get better. It just gets tedious. And I find it all to be really tedious these days. Tedious. Having a bunch of stores is, what a pain in the neck. <laughs> now, uh, I, when you started at Dean and DeLuca, you would, uh, you know, I know uh, those guys, Giorgio and Joel, had set up uh, D&D to be really a store for cooks. And that was your mandate. You're was reading my mind. To bring... Uh, food for cooks so it was like not a 101 and now with fairway you are doing things both for cooks and for everybody so just discuss that a little bit you have to have all that grab and go i mean even that phrase annoys me grab and go heat and eat (laughs) all of those supermarket phrases that just are so tedious we have to do them or we wouldn't be able to stay in business but we are so retro we're such dinosaurs fairway should be called fairway dinosaur market because (laughs) we're still all about cooking we're still about having provided a shop that's set up for people who are serious about their ingredients we're ingredient driven people who know they can trust their retail food store to have the very best that it can be of any particular thing that their recipe calls for and that's what i've been doing for 40 years is Mm -hmm. is my recipe driven idiot savant attitude towards food is that by gosh if you don't have the technique or the know-how to execute a, re- a recipe, but you got the guts to try, the least I can do, the least Fairway can do, is provide for you the very best ingredient that that recipe calls for. And we never make any, any 
um, uh, allowance for, well, is that the right price? Are those Paragord walnuts that much better than those California walnuts? Well, yeah, they are, and they're more expensive. Well, are those Brittany sardines that you bring in that are called vintage sardines because they've been in the tin for three, four, five, six, seven years? Are they really better than King Oscar that are like 79 cents a package? Well, yeah, they are. Well, how about my anchovies that come from the Catalan coast of, of, of Catalonia? Are, are they better than, than some uh, uh, shaka anchovies that come from the south coast of Sicily? No. Patrick Martins, of all people, <laughs> knows about anchovies and how huge a gaping gap of difference there is between no, a no, no, serious, no, no. hand-eviscerated, hand-packed mm. uh, anchovy and, and the ordinary ones that you find on really bad pizza. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a huge difference. So I'm ingredient-driven. Everything that I think about and that I deal with throughout the day, six and seven days a week this time of year, is about it being the very best. And that's a great source of pride. I mean, I walk around my stores, orgulloso, man. <laughs> my chest sticking out because I know what I've got. Then you got somebody come through the store and do a market basket to compare the same ingredients with Trader Joe or with Whole Foods, and and we may come Fairway may come out looking looking like we're charging too much money, but you know you're comparing Clementines to kumquats here. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, my mm -hmm. stuff is better than what they offer. Now, have you noticed over the years an ingredient that you really were so proud of, and then back home in Europe they have gone down, or and have you noticed other ones that were once bad that have gone up? I mean, is there uh, interesting question? Much Pat. change. I've been doing this since I've been importing this stuff direct since uh, you know the mid '90s now. So that's going on 20 years now that I've been really seriously spending all my time with 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 importing these mm -hmm. great ingredients and i found that i've stuck with almost every single guy that i've been working with the brother and sister that do my horseradish and all sauce they've mm. been with me for 18 years now the people that do my sauerkraut out of uh, champagne and all sauce they've mm. been they've been with me forever and ever all these people my sea salt people my my on and on i, I even brought a list here to show you <laughs> My beets. I, I bring in beets from France. You know, you can go on all you want about local. I was and there's nobody ask. more local than Fairway. I mean, all summer long, everything is local. But when that stops, you've still got to fulfill that recipe's requirements. And if you're going to stay local, you're not going to have what you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my horseradish that I, got, I buy out of Alsace, I mean, I love Gold's horseradish. And I imagine that horseradish root comes from someplace in the lower 48, and it's perfectly fine. But my Alsatian horseradish is better. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just better. Mm -hmm. And on and on, right down the line. The answer to that question is, they've all stayed the same. Have I found new stuff? Sure, I found new stuff. But I'll stick with those guys for 18 years mm -hmm. now. Watch. Because these are family-run outfits, and they don't vary in quality. They only get better, mm -hmm. better, and better, just like my olive oil people. Now, what about uh, packaging? Uh, when you started in the late 70s, uh with Dean and DeLuke and you were bringing in these things, I imagine packaging has gotten more sophisticated uh, and just changed. I mean, is that something important? Because I know how much energy you put into signage at Fairway and you write every sign in every Fairway. Yeah. I mean, that's like 500, yeah. that's like an encyclopedia uh, yeah. of, of, of writing. So talk to, I'm kind of well, interested about packaging it, from it, these weird little places around the world. It's the grace and the concurrent ineptitude of the way the Europeans package and label things that delights me. Very often, you'll get grace and ineptitude within the same package that's just a scintillating presentation. For instance, a, a half-liter bottle of an olive oil from some little outfit in the south of France will have just a, a, a spectacular eye-beater of a, of a raised graphic mm -hmm. uh, a label for their olive oil. But then the copy on the label will be misspelled, and it'll be practically hand-done. So the, while they're blowing your mind with the choices they've made for the artwork, you know, embossed gold, drips, and then the juxtaposition of the really lame provincial copy is one of the thing that, things that delights me. Mm -hmm. And it's always been that way since the early 70s uh, that I recall. The, the, the French and the... Uh, 
the Italians have always done spectacular label work, but now the Spaniards are doing it too, and now the Portuguese are doing it too, mm-hmm. the Belgians are doing it too, and they've taught American artisans who are producing food how to wake up and smell the coffee as regards how they present their product. So, yeah, there's been a sea change in local labeling and, and marketing presentation as a result of how sophisticated and insouciant at the same time mm-hmm. the Europeans are by having great art but having really lame copy that's misspelled. I mean, my harissa maker is this Orthodox Jew who lives in Paris and manufactures in Paris, and he makes a harissa for me that's, that's of course, kosher and handmade in small batches, but but he's and, and it's just the, the greatest. It's like homemade harissa. It's not like something you'd squeeze from a tube. It comes from a jar, and and he's he's so non compost mentis. He forgot to put the word harissa on the last huge <laughs> multi pallet batch of harissa I ordered from this guy. So, and 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 he'd get me thrown in jail because he he, he refuses to be inspected by the French mm-hmm. FDA and he refuses to let an, an American FDA guy on his plant. So I had to cut him out. And he didn't realize suddenly he's out, you know, tens, twenties, tens of thousands of euro just mm. because he he, pro- he chooses to be primitive with his marketing and his label presentation. Right. Well, I put that same question. What about uh, technology in terms of uh, temperature consistency and preservation and that? Have the, these ingredients gotten better because they come across the sea better? I mean, is that technology jumped? I mean, it's not like that. It's it's more. Um, it has more to do with the specific item that we're referring to. The people that, that grow, peel, and grind my horseradish in Alsace, they still have the same primitive equipment that they've ever had. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, so many of my little olive oil people, and I've got 175 olive oils that I bring in direct. Most stores have maybe three or 14. Yeah. You know, I've got like 175, and I'm devoted passionately to all of them. They've changed radically, a sea change in how they produce their olive oil. It's no longer pressed. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you see first cold pressing, that, that's, that's, that's a total misnomer because olive oil is not pressed anymore, mm. and it's certainly not cold. Um, if it was cold, you wouldn't get a single drop out of the olives, and they're not pressed. They're mulched in two revolving uh, cylinders that are flanged in opposite directions, and they, that, that creates the mulch and separates the oil and the water and the mulch all at one one time. So this the is result is technology. the oil much less oxidized, and the peanut polyphenols remain inside. So that's a technological change, but not a modernization. It it it's uh, it's it's just the lights went on with the millers mm-hmm. in the entire industry of olive oil. They've learned how to make it as good as it could possibly be, as opposed to five, six, mm-hmm. seven years ago when it was not, when it was still pressed. So things evolve, not always in a bad way. I think the more we get modern, the worse it is for our food. But sometimes there are exceptions to the rules, such as with olive oil, mm-hmm. where logical thinking millers who are impassioned about what they're doing have a breakthrough mm-hmm. and it affects the entire industry. So it's not all bad, as I say, I think it is. Right. Now, uh, I'm just interested, uh, you know, I was talking to you, how do olive oil and vinegar figure into your equation of being an authority on taste? I mean, that is interesting. I mean, you really excel. You're good with all these lists and I want to see this list, but why olive oil? Is it because of how pervasive it is in so many cuisines and how much you need it or because it was so bad before you started bringing these in? Why are you an expert in particular in these? Th- I mean, cheese, obviously. You wrote a, a Bible on cheese, the cheese primer. and uh, But why olive oil and vinegar now? It's the same thing with olive oil and vinegar as it was for me with cheese. Back in the old days, back in the mid-70s and 80s, I realized there were no decent cheeses in New York. There was no decent cheese available to New Yorkers. So I changed all that myself because nobody else did. Mm-hmm. Nobody else thought it was necessary. Everybody was happy to have all these derivatives and imitations of the real thing. So I went after the real thing, and I made it staple in New York. So many cheeses, I can't even begin to label them, name them. And, Patrick, I turned around, and I realized the same thing about olive oil. I learned too much too fast about olive oil. And what I learned is that nobody knows anything about olive oil. Mm -hmm. And then number two, I learned that everything that was available in New York City uh, into the mid-90s 
is not worthy of anybody who's serious about food mm. and certainly not worthy of anyone serious about olive oil. So I made it my business to get my hands on the real deal, olive oils that have been grown and milled by people who understand the nature of olive oil, as opposed to people who are in the olive oil industry who only understand how to make money out of olive oil. Mm -hmm. And when you make money out of olive oil, it means you are undoubtedly someone who left the olives on the tree too long. You waited until those olives were purple and black to where they had zero polyphenols left in them, which is the whole raison d'etre for olive oil in the first place, mm. because it's that bitterness that brings out the flavors in foods, as well as that bitterness being the substance that will make you live forever with hardly ever any instance of disease. So everything being offered to New Yorkers as regards olive oil was not just not the right thing, it's not good for you. Mm -hmm. And if the EU was honest, the EU would tell people, we have learned through our research, and we've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of euros on this, we've learned that oxidized olive oil that's labeled extra virgin in every supermarket across the country is bad for you. It's not just not good. Right. It is bad for you. But if they told people that, it would turn a multi-hundred million dollar industry on its ear. It would throw a lot of people out of work. It would throw a lot of people in jail. Mm -hmm. And it would put a lot of people out of business. So the EU is not going to tell you don't buy that bottle of olive oil in the supermarket that's $6.99 for a liter because it's cheap olive oil that was derived from olives that were dead mm -hmm. and you've got no business using it. And if it tastes good to you, it's because your mom and dad thought it tasted good. They always had lousy olive oil. Their moms and dads think it tastes good mm -hmm. because they always had lousy olive oil. Olive oil has got to be early harvest. Preferably mono or bicultivar, meaning only one or two varieties of olives, mm -hmm. in order to show some respect for the, the cultivar that is, is in that bottle. And it's got to have that high polyphenol level that early harvest renders to olive oil, because those are what battle the free radicals and make olive oil stay fresh and tasty and not be oxidized mm -hmm. and not be bad for you. Well, very interesting. I, one of the things, most interesting things, and I talk about this all the time that I learned from Steve is, yeah, people didn't necessarily eat better in the good old days. You know, a lot of times the people didn't eat meat uh, as good. You know, we read the jungle and all the muckrakers, but also with things like olive oils and tomatoes and pasta and all these things that we take for granted now. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and then uh, we have uh, so we got uh, told people that Steve was coming in, so we have some uh, weird, random questions uh, coming up. Uh, so stay tuned uh, for the last segment with uh, one of our heroes, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. You are listening to Without You by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit Heritage Radio Network.org today.
right. Well, if anyone's listening, hopefully they're learning. Um, yeah. I am Patrick Martins, your host. You're listening to the main course on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we have very exciting new homepage that includes six or seven news stories, which cycle out every day. So six new news stories every day, all about food, all three or four minutes long. Super, super fun type of website that you want to log on every morning now, every day, and see what's new. Food recalls. Uh, we just heard a piece earlier about uh, all the turkey parts and why they're called what they're called and what they do and are they culinarily useful. Very, very interesting stuff. We're in studio with one of our favorite people and our first evolutionary on the Heritage Radio Network, Steve Jenkins. We've been talking about stores for cooks and ingredients and olive oil. But uh, we wanted to, you know, when we told uh, the interns that Steve was coming in, we have a a few different questions that we uh, accumulated. So top three food writers or food people over the past 30 years, besides you and me. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave four or five out, but it's Patience Gray. Patience Gray. Interesting. Tell us about She wrote Patience. Honey from a Weed, which is probably my cardinal book in my library, and my hmm. library is immense. Okay. I don't know if it's in print anymore, but you can go online probably to A Books and find it. But anybody who is even mildly serious about food, if they want to bliss out they'll get their hands on their own copy of honey from a weed by patience gray okay then i would say roy andres de groot hmm. his book auberge of the flowering hearth is one of the greatest books ever written hmm. he goes to visit dauphine which is where the mountains that resulted in chartreuse the liqueur are hmm. and he finds his way up this mountain and runs into a, an auberge, an inn run by three old ladies who would do a composed menu every night for their inn mm -hmm. that is just the most amazing thing. So the auberge, the auberge of the Flowering Hearth by Roy Andres de Groot. And after that, I'd say anything that MFK Fisher, Mary Frances Fisher, wrote. MFK Fisher is, a, is an American treasure. Um, she transcends the notion of food writing way, way, way. Mm -hmm. So those, those are my three Those are right your three. Very interesting. And what about chefs? Uh, not as food writers, but I mean people or just, you know, distributor people who have really made a change in the way Americans see food. Like I say, not including you or me because I know we would be – We would be top, way up in there. Way up. Way up in But there. I mean is there a chef that you that came along at a certain time – uh, you know, that just changed things for you or that it was just so superior to everybody else, you know? I used to, I, ha I have the distinction of having gotten to wait on Craig Claiborne and Pierre Franet for years. Hmm. And that's a really, really wonderful thing that I think one of my arrows in my quiver that, that I can actually say I knew those guys and talked to them. And I think the things that, that, that Craig did with Pierre were, were landmark. Um, I think they brought us ahead decades mm. in, in a matter of time, very short period of time. So they stick out in my mm -hmm. mind. Um, I don't, nobody else is really coming to mind because I've got so many pals that are chefs. I sure, think. yeah, you don't want to just pick. Well, uh, now uh, we're just jumping around here. So now uh, 502 is a uh, uh, policy, a, a law in Washington State for the legalization of uh, marijuana. And uh, I just wonder, do you think uh, pot should be legalized in the United States or you think it doesn't matter? Do you think quality would go up or down if it was? Uh, it's hard for me to talk about it because I've been a pothead for 40 years and I don't know if I should say anything at all. It'll just incriminate me. You know, my my mood all these years has always been directly tied to my stash. The lower my stash, the more annoyed and, and irritable I Ornery. am. But when I'm, I'm when I've been holding, and you know, I have ever, I've never gotten down to sticks and seeds in forty years. Um, when I'm when I'm holding, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. So I I just never I think about it and I go I I don't really have an opinion either way. I I I rue that anyone's in jail over pot. Mm -hmm. I am concerned that kids that are too young are getting high. That bothers me a great deal because I've got children. So I, 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 I'm afraid to say anything because I'm usually wrong about that stuff. I, um, I, 
learned from Mike Edison, my co-writer for the Carnivore's Manifesto, the book that comes out in the spring, that uh, Louis Armstrong wrote a song called Muggles, yep. and that's what it was called, uh, you know, wearing his muggles. Exactly. So um, <laughs> now, tell us about, uh, now you just did a, uh, a piece for the Wall Street Journal about the telling room? That was um, early last summer, I guess it was, okay. a few months ago. I, I wrote a review for a book called The Telling Room. And it was written by this guy that wrote a book a couple of years ago about Albert Einstein's brain having been removed from his skull and kept by the Princeton guy that performed the autopsy on him. Hmm. And and Michael, the, the author of the, the Telling Room, wrote this book called Driving Mr. Albert, where he finally convinced this old man at Princeton who'd who was still in, in possession of Einstein's brain to to take it back to a, an Einstein family member? It is, it's, it's all this time's gone by and they still haven't. Nobody's claimed Einstein's brain, so they drive cross country with Einstein's brain. So this is the guy who wrote the Telling Room, which is about a cheese that only I and another guy in Ann Arbor sold back in the the mid 70s that was a it was like a manchego though it was not it was made in the same area it was a hard sheep's cheese that was that was delivered of its rind and packed in good olive oil in a can it was canned cheese and it became a super superstar in that every president every prime minister every foreign minister every opera star like pavarotti everybody that was anybody in fashion or design had to have this Paramo de Guzman, sheep's cheese. Paramo meaning a height, like a butte or a plateau. Okay. And Guzman, the name of the cheesemaker in Castilla Leon, in a hideous part of Spain, windswept, no trees, cold like hell in the winter, hot like hell in the summer. Nothing ever goes on. People hang out in little stone huts and, and smoke and drink and lop off chunks of chorizo all day, all night, to get away from the heat or to get away from the cold. Mm-hmm. And this guy... Uh, uh, not a young man. This guy was middle aged, and he just realized one day that his his grandmother had stopped making this cheese that made his family so happy. And he thought to himself, "Why don't I make this cheese? All I do is drive long distance trucks. Why well, might as well make this cheese?" And he, he he started to make this cheese his grandmother used to make. Perfected it because he is a maniac. The cheese became a superstar. He became a superstar. His best friend who was helping him run the company proceeds to steal the company from him. He loses everything. He descends into a very dark place where all day he plans and plots the torture and murder of his best friend who stole his business from him. Mm. And this American, Michael, wrote this book, The Telling Room. And I wrote the review of it for the Wall Street (laughs) Journal. And it's the damnedest thing you ever read, like the book he wrote two years prior about Albert Einstein's, Einstein's brain. Right. Your listeners must think I'm out of my I mind. I know. I was like, connect it back. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but are you hip to this, the telling room, about a cheese in a can mm. that drives a guy so crazy that, that he he's, pl- he's obsessed with torturing his best friend to death? He's going to sit him down, tie him up, cut off pieces of his ear, then... Well, I understand. I'm married to a cheesemonger, so I understand exactly. <laughs> Anne has uh, asked me to collaborate on a few injuries, not a killing. She's from the Midwest. <laughs> but uh, very, very interesting. Well, people should pull that up, and we'll provide a link to it on the Wall Street Journal website. Uh, that must have been a fun review. Do oh, you write? Gosh. Do you do op-eds in that? This um, that? Does that I'm turn asked, you on? When yeah. I'm asked, but I'm telling you, if... if you're into a great book. This is a great book. This That's awesome. It's a terrific awesome. book, The Telling Room, and it's all about cheese and food and the lore of Spain. I mean, I learned more about Spain in the footnotes of this book than I knew heretofore, and I go to Spain three times a year for years and years and years. I learned more about Spain than I thought I knew. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, definitely, The Telling Room. And uh, now uh, another question. You're going to be at The Y with Joshua Wesson in the next few days. Uh, Tell me about that. And who is Joshua Wesson, and what are you going to be talking about? How do people get tickets? Joshua Wesson is my colleague for years and years and years. We've held forth and parsed innumerable cheeses and their accompaniments and wines and other alcoholic beverages that go with them, that we've married with them at venues such as the National Geographic Society, the Smithsonian, the University of this, the University of that, 
And our favorite venue is the 92nd Street Y because it's it's our neighborhood, it's our crowd, it's mm-hmm. our people, and they have a, a series of events all autumn and winter mm-hmm. where learned people come in and talk. And so they they figured, well, we got to have the, some food people. Who can mm-hmm. we get? Well, let's get the, that crazy man Jenkins <laughs> and Joshua Wesson, who's a a master sommelier, and he's the most engaging and knowledgeable and funny and fun guy in the world to talk to about wine because he te- he makes you understand that you, that there's so many things to know about what he does all day. You'd just love to sit at Joshua's feet and listen to him talk about mm-hmm. wine. And they're going to be passing around cheese and wine? And oh, it'll that? be composed. We'll have tables, mm. and I'll compose a plate with six, seven cheeses on it, oh, wow. two, three accompaniments, and Joshua will bring six or seven wines. Yeah. I just found out, as I have done twice in the past, I served wild boar prosciutto at mm. the Y once, and then the next year I served Iberico ham. This is before it was legal here, and I didn't realize that ham is not a good not thing a big thing at be, the Y. Yeah. And they were horrified, absolutely horrified. And I'm getting so senile that I almost did it again this year. I had a cortador all set up to slice Iberico Beota at this gig and another slicer, a Salumiere, to slice my new brand of prosciutto called Zuarina, which I have to tell you about. Zuarina, which it. harkens back to the Libyan days of Italy, which is nothing to be proud of. But this cheese has a heritage that goes all the way back to the to the turn of the century when Libya was involved in their colonial aspirations in Libya. Italy never conquered very interesting, very powerful places. Libya, Ethiopia, Eritrea, right? It's still called Eritrea a little bit. Fascinating. Just fascinating. So that's December 8th at the 92nd Street. Why? I don't know if it's sold out. Okay. I hope you'll call the box office and find out. Yeah. Because I'm not bragging. There's just nothing more fun than doing three hours of drinking wine and eating cheeses that turn me on and listening to everything there is to know about them. Especially from Every- you two guys. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. And everybody gets bombed and it's egalitarian. Everybody asks questions. And <clears throat> it's just that it, there's no more fun. You can't have more fun. So, uh, you know, last question. We're, we're already over on the show, but we always go over when you're on. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> biggest BS. De- debunk something new for us because I know you've never been afraid to debunk stuff, which I'm a great admirer of because too many people sit back and let bullshit happen and they don't stand up to it so i remember you once with the sacramento olive oil board uh but you know it's something that you do with great wit and fun uh so anything new that uh pisses you off that people think but they're wrong i want people to remember that the beluga the ocetra and the sevruga species of sturgeon are as good as extinct and do not allow yourself to be fed or yourself to purchase Iranian or Russian caviar ever, ever again. And if you think you're going to scratch that itch with American paddlefish, shovel nose, um, or paddle, um, or hackleback, don't. It's, it's serviceable caviar, and it is indeed from a species of sturgeon, and it's wild caught and wild sained. But it can't hold a candle in terms of in terms of snap and flavor and depth of flavor and lingering flavor that great Iranian and and Russian Caspian caviar has. So, so you what just I want you to do up? is put it put caviar out of your mind. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm. If you have to buy caviar, at least strive to get the American hackleback or paddlefish. But it's, still but it's the not going to delight you the way. Caspian caviar used to. What about truffles in uh, uh, Oregon? I mean, I know pigs that refuse to hunt them. I mean, are they uh, have have people made strides? I have in yet that? to taste serious truffles from this country, yeah. and I've tasted quite a few. Mm. I was with my friend Ariane Degan last week, who owns D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan yeah. and I wanted to see what she had, and she showed me her black Burgundians that were gorgeous and 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 beyond redolent, and she showed me her Alba Piemonte mm-hmm. whites. That were equally gorgeous, but they're nineteen hundred dollars a pound. The whites wholesale. So I would say to you, anybody that wholesale. can afford that kind of thing for their gratification or their self gratification, which are two different things, I think you should be firebombed for conspicuous <laughs> consumerism, much the same as you should be for consuming caviar. 
So I, I think the whole thing is a big bunch of nonsense. Nothing I like more than white truffles with scrambled eggs. I can live without it because it makes me ill to think that anybody would spend that kind of money on, on food when they, they could make that money work someplace else. Who am I to say such a thing? What a hypocrite. <laughs> I know. Two things in a row now. But I'm telling you, I, I'm, the truffle. I'm admitting to being a hypocrite, Patrick. But I would also say to you that truffle oil is among the most noisome. Oh, yeah substances there is you can smell it from across a dining room that's not a natural substance i think it's gross and i think it's uncool and i hope our listeners will try and avoid anything imbued with truffle oil because if you put a truffle in oil the oil will not uh, acquire any of that flavor you really have to inject it that's why that's why almost all the truffle oils that are available out there are phony, and they've got chemicals in them. I just private labeled our fairway truffle oil, which is truly from real truffles. Okay. They've been it's oil that's been steeped with the truffles the old fashioned way. But I, I, I loathe truffle oil. Well, good. Well, there you go. There are three things uh, for people, and I, I like it. You've made me really feel good. I'm not going to buy a, an eighteen hundred dollar truffle. I'm not going to buy caviar. You've convinced me. I'll have to change the menu for tonight. <laughs> but uh, thanks, Steve. You just saved me a lot of money. It's great to be with you, Patrick. Yes, yeah, Steve. You're always a pleasure, and you'll be on. Uh, this is my 197th episode. <gasps> oh, my god! Yeah, so I want to get first to 200, and then I'll let all these other dummies with their beer shows and uh, you know cooking tips uh, catch up and beat me. But uh, first to 200 <laughs> is legit, and uh, you've been on more than anyone. It's always a pleasure, and I uh, look forward to having you on many times in the future. We'll get Joshua Wesson out here. You'll love him. Oh, that'd be fun. We'll do a tasting. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And stay tuned for What Doesn't Kill You, hosted by Katie Keeper. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.